And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's, it's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more He's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy, nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, I, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that, that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. And we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God. God outside and never blend the two. You know, that is that is how I was trained, honestly. And um, I, I am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I, um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time, wasting my time, um, because I believed the surgeon's motto, you know, heal with steel, or, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. And some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just, uh, it, 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 it's... It, it's not all uh, for the patient. We, we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe 
within some within the medical community that you know why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure i'm the doctor i'm in charge I'm handling this, almost sounding as if at a level maybe, while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God? You know, that is, that is um, I think, very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And, um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, uh, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think, we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about... Uh, the spiritual aspect of of this case, because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there there there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what happened when, when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and um, my dentist, uh, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine, and, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're right? a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then... I felt this peace come over me. It was it was just an unusual. I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say now. Come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things, yeah. 
But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. Well, you know, why, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them? But I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs. My heart was pounding. Uh, and, of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And um, so I decided to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this... This, I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do, right. But I was, I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time. And so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I, you know say, okay, I'll have to pray another day, and I, I back up to the nurse's station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so, you know how we do. We pretend to, I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking, you know, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally... Finally, she leaves, and I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And... You know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. 
and I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and and went off uh, to my surgery, which uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before, because I the, the patients looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life, I had said, look, I'm not God, I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God, but I would be willing to talk to him with you, if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we, as the uh, patients, uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I certainly uh, have been guilty of that for many years. And so there's something about, um, as as we give glory to God, there it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his in the brain. He had a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back. And so I I began to ask him about um, his emotional health, and I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron. Is there someone that you can't forgive? And he, he's an enormous man. He's this uh, marine and enormous guy, and so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools, and so I'm starting to roll away from him, <laughs> rolling back to the wall. And finally, he said, "My mother." And I said, "Excuse me." I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And he said, "No, my mother." And I said, well, well, Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my, uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would, uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I, I stood up, and I said, come on, Mom, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. And I've hated her. He said, I've hated her since that time. And I've, um, and 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, 
okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Hmm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family. Because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together, and 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 I think as physicians or even as friends, um, you know, we can we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. And certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life too. Mm. It, it has. Yes, I, I've I've certainly um, obviously I have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know I have to forgive. I have to, um, you know, actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time, and so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day, um, and so yeah, my my life has changed, and I think I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you've probably heard the news. The number of Americans living below the poverty line is now at its highest level in some 50 years. That, according to a recent report released by the U.S. Census Bureau, finds that more than 46 million people in the United States um, have uh, 
qualified for that uh, un- uh, undubious position of being under the poverty level. The new figures are the third increase in three years and nearly 1% increase from 2009. The federal government also says that median incomes in the United States fell over 2% last year. The U.S. apparently has one of the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations. I thought, you know, when we talk about poverty and the poverty level, uh, what exactly does that mean? How do we define all of this? And when the Census Bureau says that America has the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations... Uh, that's got a big question for definition, too. Well, with some insights, we brought in an expert. Robert Rector is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is considered one of the leading national authorities on the topic of the United States welfare system and poverty and um, has been recently dubbed the intellectual godfather of welfare reform by National Review editor Rich Lowry. And uh, Mr. Rector, great to have you on the program tonight. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Let's begin with some basic definitions. You know, when, when I hear the word poverty, I I have a vision in my mind, Robert, of similar to what uh, folks went through during the Great Depression. You know, the, the Dust Bowl people of Oklahoma making their way with all this stuff strapped in the side of their Model A into the state of California. Literally had no money, no resources, no food, no nothing. When we talk about poverty in America today... Is the picture that I just painted an accurate one? No, but the picture that you have is is what the average person has in mind when they hear uh, the government say there are 46 million poor people. They think about poverty as a, a family that's homeless or living in a decrepit shack with a hole in the roof, not having enough food to eat, maybe not being able to put clothes on your kids' backs. And when you look at the news media, when they run stories about poverty, they almost invariably present you with a homeless family or with a family that that has an empty refrigerator and so forth. And while those families that are in that type of severe hardship do exist, and we have to be very concerned about them, they are a very, very tiny, tiny portion of this 46 million people that are are ostensibly poor. In fact, only 1% of the poor are homeless. Now, what about food? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture runs a a survey of food consumption and hunger each year, and last year they asked poor parents, this 46 million group, poor parents, they asked them the following question. At any time... During the previous 12 months, were your children ever hungry, even for a single day, because you didn't have enough food in the home or you didn't have enough money for food? You know what? 96% of poor parents said, my children were never hungry at all at any point over the 12-month period in the middle of a of this severe, severe recession. Now, let me ask you an important question related to all of this, because I would imagine for folks that are filling out these surveys, I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, myself, quite frankly, Robert, to be uh, all that candid in some of my responses. I mean, are there cases where uh, parents are under-reporting their circumstances because they just simply feel embarrassed by it all? I, I don't really think so, because the survey asks a lot of other questions besides that. 
And the survey basically kind of tells us the same thing every year. And then there are other indicators that we'll talk about in the home. For example, um, when you look, we have surveys where you measure the actual food consumption and you compare the nutriment intake of poor children and upper middle class children. There, you can really have to struggle quite a bit to find any difference in the in the intake of vitamins and minerals and protein. And they're all eating the same junk food, rich or poor. Kids still well, have uh, the sweet tooth. The same, <laughs> right, the same food. Uh, we even have surveys that go in and we take blood samples and we look for protein in the blood and, and things like that. And you don't find that poor people are generally particularly different than anybody else. If you look at... For example, the, the consumption of percentage of calories that come from protein, from carbohydrates, from fats. Poor people look exactly the same as everybody else. We have another set of surveys that ask uh, poor these poor households what sorts of things they have in the home. And what this survey shows us is that 80% of poor people have air conditioning. Two-thirds of them have cable TV, 75% of them have an automobile, a third of them have two or more automobiles, 50% of them have a computer in the home, 40% of them have Internet access, a third of them have a, a widescreen plasma TV, and a quarter of them have a TiVo system, okay? Now, that's the sorts of things you're just not going to make up. And, and it's very consistent because we, as we look, even though the government kind of suggests that poor people aren't getting any better, year by year as we do that survey, the, the, the amount of things that the poor people have in their home goes up, largely as the cost of those commodities go down. I, I guess a lot of this then ultimately is very relative to what our point of reference is, and I want to talk about that when we come back. As, you know, as I mentioned earlier, look, if you're Warren Buffett and your net worth suddenly plummets from you know the billions of dollars that you're kicking around with every day to just $10 million in the bank account, to you that's probably poverty. Uh, to me, that's retirement. So is it relative in to what degree, then, do we adequately define what poverty means? And can it really be true that the poverty situation is worse in the United States than any other so-called developed nation? Really? Or are we just living under a big illusion here? Delusion might be the better word. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation, a timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Robert Rector is with a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Now, Robert, as we define poverty, how much of this is all relative? I asked that question. We had a listener call in a moment ago, didn't want to be on the air, but said, you know, I consider myself at the poverty level, and I don't have all those things. I don't have a widescreen TV set. I don't have broadband Internet access right. at home. How can we say that people who are defined as under the poverty level in America have all those things? I don't. Well, the fact is, when you ask the public, Rasmussen just did a poll a few weeks ago, and he asked a very simple question. He said, look, if a person has adequate food for their family and has a reasonable place, apartment, or home to live in that's in reasonable condition, would you consider that person to be poor? And by a ratio of about six to one, people said, no, that individual isn't poor. And, and the reality is 
by that standard, having a, a decent place to live in, having a sufficient nutritious food for your family, about four out of five poor people are simply not poor in any sense. And then they have, then you got to throw the the plasma TV and the computers and all of that on top of that. Um, the reality is that most people in the United States, when they hear the word poverty, are not thinking about relative poverty. They're thinking about the images that they see on TV, which are conventionally uh, homeless families, people living in an overcrowded trailer with the roof leaking. They're always images of rather significant deprivation. And trust me, now I realize that there are families like that in the United States. Um, but the average poor family and the bulk of people that are, are identified as poor don't live anything like that. And they might, might reasonably say, well, how come census is saying that we have 46 million poor people? And the answer is in the way that they count poverty. Census says that a family is poor if it has a cash income over the course of one year uh, below $22,000 a year. However, and here's the catch, when they count income, the entire safety net is excluded. All welfare in the United States is excluded. Food stamps, earned income tax credit, Medicaid, public housing, none of those things are counted. What does that mean? Well, last year, the taxpayers spent $900 billion, close to a trillion dollars, on cash, food, housing, medical care for anti-poverty programs for poor and low-income Americans. When you divide that out, that comes to around $9,000 for each low-income American, none of which is counted by census when they calculate this poverty level. The missing money, talking about international comparisons, the missing money alone is greater than the gross national product of virtually every nation in the globe. So again, it really comes down to an issue of, of at what level do we consider or define poverty and, well, and, 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 and what yardstick we're using against it. The, indeed. For, and basically, as I said, you know, look, the typical poor family has air conditioning, cable TV, has a computer in the house. If they've got kids, they've got an Xbox. They have a car. Here's a nice international comparison for you. The average poor American, now half of poor Americans live in standalone single-family homes. Forty percent of them are in apartments. Only ten percent of them are in, in mobile trailers. But the average dwelling of a poor American is about 40 to 50 percent larger than the average house or apartment in England. Not of poor English people but of every English person. It's about 50% larger than the average dwelling in France, in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy. Okay. Of course, more, more space doesn't this. necessarily mean more opulence, though. It doesn't, but it, it, it's a good... Uh, and it, that wouldn't be true in every indicator by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very good indication that, that uh, the poor in the United States are very well housed, I mean extremely well housed, by international standards, most of these houses and apartments in the U.S. are in good condition. Not all of them, but most of them are. When you have these comparisons about, oh, well, the United States has more poverty than other nations, this, again, is relative. 
this income standard that is used to judge poverty in the United States is higher than all the other nations. Okay, so this is like having a hurdle race out in a track and field meet where the other nations are jumping three-foot hurdles and the United States is jumping four-foot hurdles. And at the end of the race, the United States comes in a little bit behind and people say, aha, see, the United States is a poorer hurdler, right? No. <laughs> the judge, the, 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 the test that you put the United States up against was, ha- was higher than the test that other nations have. Plus, that's compounded by the fact that in the United States, in the United States alone, we don't, we have all of this money in our system to assist poor people, but we don't count that in our statistics for either poverty or for inequality. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Robert, appreciate you taking some time to kind of bust out the numbers for us and give us a bit more uh, deeper understanding as to exactly how we define folks in America based on uh, the poverty line on Lifeline from KFAX. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.